Thank you for listening to the Restoration City Church Podcast. For more information about our church or to support us financially, please visit rcc.church. Good morning. I'm glad that you are here. We are going to work our way through uh, 1 Corinthians 8 together um, this morning, maybe as a way of getting started. Some of you have noticed uh, my kids, all three of them, um, sort of churn out an endless supply of little bracelets, right? This week's model was made by Aiden, and Emma assured me this morning that she was making me one that is far better than this because hers is going to be made of string, right? And I'm happy to wear them. It's like one small act of rebellion against the aging process, right? I'm happy to have the little rubber band bracelet. In fact, I kind of like it, truth be told. So every once in a while, I'm checking out people's wrists just to see what the kids are wearing these days. And over the last couple of years, I've sort of noticed this proliferation of bracelets that are just a very simple band of smooth wooden beads. And every once in a while, I'm like, man, I should upgrade, pay actual money for a bracelet. No doubt that will make me cooler. And I like the look of that little wooden bracelet. And I would think about it every once in a while, but never even like mention it to Laura or Google it or whatever. Um, But one day I was like, man, I'm curious, where does one obtain such a bracelet. And I probably should have been working on a sermon or something, but I wanted to, you know, spend some time surfing around the internet, and I found out it's not a kind of bracelet made popular by surfers, that was my assumption, that it was actually Buddhist mala beads that I had been looking at. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. Like, I wonder if that's the kind of thing that a pastor of an evangelical Christian church should be buying or not, right? And some of you are like, I need to know the answer urgently. Um, I opted not to buy it, probably based less on religious convictions and more based on the price tag, where I was like, yeah, no thanks, I'm good. I don't think I'm going to spend that much money. But all of a sudden, there was this little ethical debate of like, hey, do I buy the beads? Because whatever, they're just cool, and who really cares? Or is that like maybe ethically or religiously sketchy? Let me give you a different example. Um, I was a young uh, pastor years ago. Uh, That sounded so sad and self-defeating. But I was a young pastor years ago. So long ago, I had energy and it was before children and all these things. Um, and I feel like, I feel like I was taken advantage of uh, by this lovely group of women who had a little exercise class that was happening in the basement of the church that I worked at at the time um, because they just real casually grabbed me one day and they were like, hey, we're thinking of making a change in the exercise program that we're following. Would you be cool with that if we you know, no longer did Richard Simmons sweating to the oldies. And I was like, well, yeah, that sounds like an upgrade. I'm already in favor. They're like, yeah, we're just going to start doing yoga. I'm like, go for it, right? You'll be more flexible, better range of motion, and you knock yourself out. Some of you have been around the church long enough to anticipate what I couldn't quite figure out back then, that a group of ladies doing yoga in the basement of a Christian church was going to rub some people the wrong way right? And not because why don't you just go join a gym and sweat with all the other pagans out there, but more of the like, whoa, isn't there a spiritual significance to yoga? Are we cool with this? Are we, are we comfortable with this? Should this be happening? 
right? One, one more and then we'll jump into the text. I got a text message from actually one of you a couple of months ago saying, hey, I'm at a wedding this weekend and it's for a really good friend of mine. She and her family are Hindi and they want me to wear a, a bindi as part of the ceremony, as, as part of being in the wedding party. Should, should I do that or not? Right? That, those are the kinds of questions. Those are certainly not an exhaustive list, but those are the kinds of questions that 1 Corinthians 8 is designed to help us wrestle with. It is a passage that in Paul's day was about meat sacrificed to idols, but it really is a passage for all of us that gives us some guidelines for navigating what we often call gray areas in the Christian life, places where well-intentioned sincere followers of Jesus have differences of opinion. And we're not talking about sort of normal pedestrian, you like Starbucks, you like Pete's kind of differences of opinion. Those are fine, morally neutral. We're not going to spend any time working our way through these. Paul's really thinking about differences of opinion that have religious, spiritual, or ethical overtones to them, right? Places where you might feel a deep sense of conviction that in order to follow Jesus well, you don't do something, or you might have an equally strong conviction that in order to follow Jesus well, you do something, right? Perhaps you're less concerned about bindis and mala beads and yoga, and you're trying to work your way through conflicting messages about, are you allowed as a follower of Jesus to drink alcohol, right? Um, Some of us grow up in traditions where that would have been an absolute non-starter. Others of us grow up in traditions that were far more comfortable with that, right? Um, Different places where different well-intentioned followers of Jesus land at different convictions. And Paul wants to help the Corinthian church navigate that, right? Because there was clearly a group of Christ followers who felt comfortable eating meat that was sacrificed to a pagan idol. And we'll talk in a few minutes about why they felt comfortable with that. And then there was a group that was deeply scandalized by that. They were like, wait a minute, you love Jesus. You follow the triune God of heaven. How could you do something that even remotely looks like idolatry? How could you be even near something that looks like or is the derivative of an act of reverence for a pagan God who in many cases stood as the exact ethical antithesis of what the New Testament would call people to or what the Hebrew Bible would call people to? And they're like, you can't go anywhere near that kind of meat. Other people were like, dude, who cares? Have a burger, get over it, and just move on. And Paul wants to help them figure things out, right? The same principles will guide us in our decision making today. And really, what he's going to do is focus on the relationship between freedom and love, right? So he's giving us far less of a checklist and kind of saying, like, all right, let's do all of the hot button issues. Let's do meat sacrifice to idols. Let's do alcohol. Let's do who are you going to vote for? Let's do all of the different things that Christians get worked up about. And I'll just give you the definitive yes or no. He has very little interest in doing that. He's like, actually, I want to teach you how to think through this. And the way that we think through this is by understanding the relationship between freedom 
and love, right? Um, let's take them one at a time, and then we're going to link them together. Um, the default setting in the Christian life is to be able to celebrate and enjoy the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. One of the places that you see that very clearly is Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, where the same Paul who writes 1 Corinthians says this, for freedom Christ set us free, that Jesus has liberated us from the chains of sin and death, but Jesus has also liberated us from the chains of religious performance. He has liberated us from the sense that there is a certain set of rules that you better follow in order to make yourself acceptable to God. Know that Christ has set us free so much so that Paul says, stand firm then, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Be really suspicious of people that come after you with a long, religiously inspired list of things that you better do or better not do. The default setting for a follower of Jesus is to embrace freedom is to do yoga if you think it's a good workout, is to buy the beads if you like it as a fashion accessory, is to feel comfortable wearing a bindi depending on how that's going to be understood by other people. The default, just to press it a little bit, is to say, wait a minute, the Bible is clear that drunkenness is a sin, but it also seems to be clear that we are permitted to drink alcohol if that is something that you are comfortable with. And I understand that there would be reasons of family history and addiction and all kinds of other reasons where you may choose not to do that. But to say, hey, the default setting is towards freedom. And again, if you come from a background that's outside of the church, you probably don't struggle with that, right? Like, that, that makes sense to me. I didn't become a follower of Jesus until the second semester of my junior year, and this idea that Jesus had set me free from the chains of sin and death, and that my relationship with him was based entirely on his grace and based entirely on what he had done on the cross, and there was no way that I could earn myself into a relationship with God. That just made sense. That's why I decided to follow Jesus. But for some of us, when I start to talk about freedom in Christ, I'm pushing back against decades of what you were taught in the church that you grew up in, what you were taught in your family. You may have been taught it explicitly, and you may have been taught a benign version of it. The benign version is like, yeah, theologically, biblically, John's probably right, but practically, if you want God to like you, you better not dance. Like, if you want God to like you, you better, like, you better not have a beer after you mow the lawn. What are you talking about? You better not spend that much money on a car. You better not go on that kind of vacation. You better not eat in that kind of restaurant. You better not wear designer jeans. You better not. You better not. We create long lists of you better not if you really want God to like you. And, and the gospel fights back against that. You are acceptable to God because of what Jesus did on your behalf, not because of anything that you do. That's where Paul goes in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, about eating food sacrificed to idols then. We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called idols... 
whether in heaven on, on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. Paul is essentially saying, hey, look, you live in the city of Corinth. This is a city that is dominated by a number of different idols, number of different religious icons that people will go and worship, that people will go and sacrifice. Here's what you know as a Christian. Those idols have absolutely no spiritual significance because they represent gods that don't actually exist. So the default becomes, who cares? Eat the meat if you are comfortable with it. Now, what I want to do for just a minute is make sure that you understand how normal this idea of eating meat that was sacrificed to idols was in the life of the Corinthians, right? Because when we start talking that way, this just sounds like some sort of weird, quasi-occult, ethically evil, just like sketchy kind of behavior. Like if I sent a group text to my community group and was like, hey guys, you know, Friday night, you want to come over, like slaughter some squirrels, fling blood all over the patio and see if we can summon up the dead or something? They'd be like, bro, you need a break. Um, that's not cool. And we're worried about you, right? Like, like this idea of meat sacrificed to idols, you're like, yeah, the whole thing is like sketchy and weird. It would have been so common in Corinth that you wouldn't have even think, thought twice about it. Right, what would happen is, um, depending on which deity you and your family worship, you would bring an animal, a cow or a goat would be relatively common to the temple to sacrifice. Um, when you did that, you would realize that, oh my goodness, one cow produces a whole lot of beef. So, in all of the temples, there were like these side dining rooms where part of the practice was you would go, you would offer your sacrifice, and then you would have a large celebration with your family and friends. And it was not uncommon that Corinthian Christians would have been invited because their neighbor was just excited and something good had happened and they were offering a sacrifice and they were like, hey, so this is like less you know, crazy squirrel sacrifice in the backyard, and it's more like, hey guys, I reserved the private room at Ruth's, Ruth's Chris on Friday night. Would you like to come and have dinner? It's on me, right? And people were like, yeah, man, I'm in. By the way, even if you had all your family and friends over for a feast after your sacrifice, there's still going to be a lot of meat left over. This is pre-refrigeration and all that kind of stuff, so what you would then do is take the excess and sell it in the market for everybody else. In fact, that was the common source of meat in the market. There really weren't very many quote-unquote butchers back in the day. That was where you got meat in the market. So this thing that seems weird and very strange to us would have been so commonplace for the Corinthians. And Paul's like, yeah, you want to go pick up a pound of lamb on your way home? You have the freedom in Jesus to do that. You want to go have dinner because you're neighbor just had a baby and he's offering a celebratory sacrifice and free steaks, knock yourself out. Go have a great time, right? So buy your bracelets, do yoga, do whatever. That's the default. And the default matters a lot, right? Matters a lot which general direction you are headed in in life right? Easy way to think about this is um, what's the default approach that you use to managing your schedule, 
right? Totally unrelated, but some people, our default is yes, where every invitation, meeting request, everything that comes through your email, your default is, oh, I need to find a way to make this happen, right? You're like, this behavior we commonly call being a people pleaser, um, right? And you can, you can do it this way, and every once in a while when you just physically can't make it to a meeting or you burn out, you'll say no to something, but then you read more people um, you know, that are like, gosh, I'm trying to be intentional with my time. It almost feels like they um, adopt a default where the answer is like, I might pro- the default might be no. And I end up saying yes to things that I really think are going to add value to my family or I say yes to things that are going to help me advance my goals in you know, the professional world or whatever. The default matters. You, we just get that instinctively, right? So it matters. It's significant when we say, no, the default setting in the Christian life is towards freedom. However, Paul has the sense that this freedom that we have in Jesus is very much shaped by a love for God and a love for other people. And what we often do is say, okay, look, you're free, but now let me just give you a very practical list of limits on your freedom. And that's not wrong, but that's not really what Paul is trying to argue. Paul isn't trying to give you sort of freedom and then peel it back step by step by step. He's not trying to give you freedom and then carve out a couple of exceptions. He's trying to say that real freedom, the Galatians 5 kind of freedom that you and I are meant to enjoy, that freedom is never going to harm another individual. Nor is that freedom going to harm ourselves, nor is that freedom going to dishonor God. That as it turns out, if it leads to dishonoring God, if it leads to harming yourself, or it leads to hurting somebody else, it's not really freedom. It's something else in disguise. So what Paul wants to do is take this baseline of freedom and say, hey, let me show you how love for God, for self, and for others, helps you steward and experience the reality of that freedom. So, four kind of ways that love helps us experience freedom. Number one, we're meant to find freedom within the will of God. Right? Got to be super clear about this, because the gospel is not in any way a freedom to ignore the will of God. What I mean by that is some people adopt a a version of following Jesus that is like, man, I love this freedom thing. Tell me more. You're telling me that I can do literally whatever I want and it will not cause God to love me any more or any less? That, by by the way, is exactly what I'm telling you. And they're like, (laughs) whoo-hoo, off to the races, right? Come on. I want to give this freedom thing a ride. There's been some things that I have been wanting to try, dabble in, experiment. Come on. You just told me it's all fair game. You're, you're thinking a version of what Paul challenges in Romans chapter 6 because there were people in Rome that thought the exact same way, and their idea was, oh, I get it. We should just keep on sinning as much as possible so that grace would be about, could abound, right? If it's already forgiven, Let's enjoy forgiveness. Let's enjoy freedom. Let's have a good time. And Paul says, may it never be. You don't understand that Jesus is Savior, but He is also King. 
right? That when we talk about freedom in Christ, it is not a freedom to ignore the revealed will of God. It is a freedom that exists within God's plan for human flourishing. To understand how this fits into Paul's argument, we actually have to fast forward two chapters to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. He's right back on the topic of meat sacrificed to idols. What he said is, if you want to buy it in the marketplace, knock yourself out. You want to go to the party? Feel free. You get invited to participate in the actual sacrifice? Stop. Don't do that. That's an act of worship to a pagan deity. You don't have any place there as a follower of Jesus Christ. Right? A lot of you know that I've spent um, a decent amount of time serving in Haiti over the years. One of the conversations that I have almost every time I go is to say, hey, look, you're a follower of Jesus Christ right now. That means you don't go to the village witch doctor anymore. You believe in Jesus. You don't go to the voodoo healer anymore. And what people are often trying to do is like, can I have it both ways? Can I go to church on Sunday, but then when the kids get sick, I'm going to go to the healer, I'm going to go to the medicine man, because that's what we do in our village, and saying, no, 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 that, that's not under the blanket of freedom in Jesus. That's not under the blanket of like, well, I'll try the church and Advil and the witch doctor and see if somehow the fever breaks, right? So Paul has clear ethical lines. And he's saying to them, don't cross the line into idolatry itself. What he would say to us today, Romans 6, 11, so you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And it's not a freedom to sin so that grace may abound. It's a freedom that leads us to live in submission to Jesus because we believe that Jesus is the one who came to call us and lead us to life and to lead us to life in abundance. And you're not going to find real freedom outside of the will of God, right? Also, real freedom is going to always lead to our flourishing, right? This is where we start to take this idea of love for God and link it to this idea of a love for self. Again, stay with me in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up, right? This is maybe what we could call the common sense provision. That yes, we have an incredible freedom in Jesus, but not everything that we have the ability to do is actually helpful for us in our flourishing. Right? So people will sometimes ask, like, is there an appropriate amount that a follower of Jesus could spend on his or her house? And I'm like, mm, not really. I mean, like, theologically, I'd be very hard-pressed to give you an answer. I can give you principles that we're called to live with generosity. I can give you principles that we're called to live for sacrificial generosity. But can I give you, like, a precise percent of your family income that you should be spending on your house and then legalistically judge you if you're spending more or less than that? No, I can't. But, but, I bet your mortgage broker has some opinions on that topic. And you should probably listen to him. You should probably trust her. You should probably lean in when she's like, 
I could approve you, but I don't know that I want to approve you, right? You, you, you get what I'm saying with this, where sometimes people are like, oh, man, this is a freedom to ignore common sense, and it's a freedom to ignore common grace. And I'm like, no, 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 you're not going to find real freedom doing, doing stuff like that, right? That, that, that's a quick one that we just kind of move on from, because what Paul's really focused on is that as we explore our freedom in Christ, we want to do it in a way that honors our own weaknesses. 1 Corinthians 8, 7, however, not everyone has this knowledge, right? That whole thing I did of like, look, idols, they don't mean anything because they represent a God that doesn't really exist, so who cares? Paul is standing behind that understanding. Yet he's saying, hey, here's the reality. Not everybody is there. Not everybody sees it that way. This is where the difference of opinion comes in. And Paul is saying, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now. In other words, they were deeply in to the worship culture of these pagan temples. They've been so deeply into that, that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol... Their conscience, being weak, is defiled, right? They feel like they are doing something wrong, right? And what we tend to do with this passage is to assume that there are two kinds of Christians in the church and that there's two kinds of people in the room. Some of us are weak and some of us are strong right? Like it's this blanket descriptor that I could just go around the room and be like, weak, 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 ooh, strong, hi, how you doing? Uh, weak, strong, strong, weak, weak, you're right. No, that's not how it works. We are all weak in some areas, and it is often based on our family of origin. It's also often based on patterns of addiction and temptation in our life. It's based on our past experiences. So, easy example. For some of you, the absolute worst, like, worst thing you could do this afternoon is to go across the river and hang out at the casino over at the MGM hotel. It's a terrible idea because you are like a couple of drinks and a few bad rolls of the dice away from losing it all. And that is like a real possibility, and the last thing in the world you want to do is go there. be honest with you, I just don't, I don't struggle with that. Like, that's just not a thing in my life where I'm like, I don't get it. Um, it feels loud and obnoxious, and I just, whatever. But like, I can hang out there all afternoon. I'm like, can I just find a quiet corner and go read a book? Like, it's just not going to be like a source of temptation for me. Um, on a slightly less dramatic scale, um, but just being real, I feel like one of the things I have to be on guard against is um, the corruption of my soul that can easily happen through HGTV or Magnolia, Chip and Jojo over there, um, sowing seeds of discontent in my little heart where I look at your pristine house in Waco, Texas with your granite countertops that cost like $112,000. And then I run that through the filter of where, and I'm like, man, I hate our house. I hate our kitchen. This decrepit place is falling down. You are all invited for dinner on Sunday night. You can make your own, make your own judgment, right? right? If I watch too much of like, you know, that genre of show, I'd start to develop this vision where I'm like, 
babe, let's just move to coastal Maine and live off the land. They seem so, ha- like, they seem so happy up there and so free, and isn't it awesome? And you can make pottery, and I'll, I don't know, find something to do. And then I'm like, wait, you're a pastor. The reason you don't move to coastal Maine is because there's no people there. And if you do, they're inside for 10 months out of the year because it's freezing up there. Like, stop it. But I can fall in love with this. And I'm like, why in the world do we live inside the Beltway? What sort of stupid fool nonsense is this? Where we live in this place with traffic, crazy cost of living, and occasionally prickly neighbors. Let's go to Maine where they're all nice, says no one. But HGTV says this. So I have to be careful. Some of you, you can go on a little like Chip and Joanna Gaines binge this afternoon and you don't care. My point is that you need to know where you're weak and you need to be comfortable honoring that. We, we, we see weakness because of the culture that we live in is like something to be fixed. Like, okay, if, you're, if you feel like there's an area of weakness, whether it's casinos or alcohol or magnolia or whatever, go fix it. But theologian Alex Chung, in his book, Idol Food in Corinth, points out that Paul shows literally no concern to change the weak. That's not Paul's agenda here at all, right? So what that means for us practically, you are free in Jesus, but you need to pay attention to the things in your life that easily become a rival to Jesus, whether it's music, food, movies, Instagram, going to the mall, doing yoga, whatever. In those areas where you know you are vulnerable to temptation, you don't need to be embarrassed or ashamed that ultimately that weakness becomes a gift to our community because of what we're going to talk about in just a minute. But there is also a note in here that says, hey, if we are weak in a particular area, don't allow our weakness to become a form of judgmentalism. Right? So again, some of you choose not to drink for religious reasons, for family history reasons, for whatever reason. The temptation often in that area is, though, to become judgmental of those who are, in the language of Paul, stronger. To become judgmental of those who would have a glass of wine with dinner or whatever. And Paul's saying, like, no, no, no. We're going to honor you We're going to honor the choice that you have made in submission to Jesus. We're not going to shame you. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to look down on you. Ultimately, we're going to work together to protect you. But you can't judge across the other side of the fence either. So, So there is a call here to say in the areas that we're weak, don't allow our weakness to become fuel for judgmentalism. Right? Now, He's going to turn his attention to what you would call the strong, right? The people that are going to be comfortable going to a temple to eat meat, the people that are going to be, you know, comfortable with freedom in Jesus. And he says, hey, are you willing to limit your freedom out of love for other people, right? That real freedom accepts limits for the good of others. He has two kinds of limits in mind. 1 Corinthians 8, 8, food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do eat. What Paul is focused on in this verse is how the Corinthians' choice of whether to eat meat or not is going to affect their social standing in the broader Corinthian community. Right? That's actually what he's worried about. He's not talking about being better off or worse off in terms of a spiritual connection with God. He's talking about how their decision to eat or not eat is going to impact their social standing in 
the community. What he's really worried about is that followers of Jesus don't do anything and don't live their life in a way that would send spiritually mixed messages, right? Meaning that we would not, under the banner of freedom, do something that would cause other people to wonder where our true loyalty lies. Let me give it to you out of 1 Corinthians 10, and then I'll try to explain it a little bit more. Verse 25 through 29, eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience. Since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. He's given us a little bit more of the theology under why you can go ahead and eat this meat in the market. If any of the unbelievers, so he's thinking about non-Christians, if anybody who doesn't follow Jesus invites you over, and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. You don't have to ask, where did this come from? Was it sacrificed to an idol? Do you still have a receipt? You don't have to do any of that sort of stuff. But if someone says to you, this food is from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of your conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? You notice what he's saying? If you eat the meat, that's fine. But if they present it to you in a way that says, oh, tonight's meal is extra special because this is a remnant from a sacrifice to this deity, that's where you should pull back because they could very well interpret your participation as an endorsement of the sacrifice to that deity. He's concerned about religiously mixed messages that would cause somebody to sit across from us at a table and say, wait a minute, what's your deal, man? What's your deal? I thought you were a follower of Jesus. And I don't get it. If you're a follower of Jesus, why are you allowing this to become so important in your life? If you're a follower of Jesus, why are you handling yourself that way, right? So, the, 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 to me, this raises questions of how we engage in politics, how we spend our money, how we manage our kids' sports, how we steward our time, whether or not we prioritize corporate worship on a Sunday, whether or not we prioritize giving to reach the, those who are most impoverished in our city. It, it brings into question a whole range of application where we might find ourselves in a place where we're like, wait, my ultimate loyalty is to Jesus Christ, and then somebody sitting across the table from us saying, well, if your ultimate loyalty to Jesus is to Jesus, can you explain this area of your life? And Paul says, hey, look, you're just better off avoiding that conversation. In his day, don't eat the meat. In our day, don't send mixed messages. But he's also worried about how our freedom impacts one another. He wants us to be careful to avoid stumbling blocks. Back to 1 Corinthians 8. Be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. 
Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never eat meat again so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. You're free in Christ, but if your freedom is going to harm somebody else in the community, why in the world would you exercise that freedom card in a way that damages somebody else? That, that's what Paul's asking. So he's saying, hey, there are going to be situations in which, and I, and I realize it's just become sort of this example that we've carried through the letter, there's going to be situations where even though you are free in Jesus to have a glass of wine with dinner, you're hosting somebody in your home where you're like, nah, that's just not loving. Nah, I'm not going to do that tonight. And if we're not willing to say no, Paul would then ask the question of like, well, is it possible that this thing has become way too important in your life? If you're like, look, you don't have to have one, but I need to have a glass of wine. Like, is it really that big a deal? Like, aren't, aren't we willing to say no out of love for one another? Right? That's, that's a pretty clear, pretty straightforward example that I think most of us would be like, oh yeah, I, I could get on board with that. How would we be willing to apply that same logic to the rest of our lives? I guess the question you could ask at that point is, is there any way, is there any way where the way we are living our lives is intentionally or not, subtly putting pressure on other people to do something that's damaging to their soul. And if we're doing that, if we're living in a way that we're putting pressure on somebody else to do something that would be damaging to their soul, Paul says, why don't you just pump the brakes? There is this freedom in Jesus, but the way to truly experience it is to allow freedom and love to meet together, right? 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Last week, we talked about the fact that we are built up by the love of God. But part of what Paul also means is that as we learn to walk in love, we find that the people around us are built up, not damaged, we find that as we learn to walk in love, we're built up, not damaged. Right? We find that as we walk in love, our relationship with God is strengthened, not weakened. And when we allow love and freedom to meet together, we will probably find ourselves smack dab in the middle of the will of God. And we will also have the right framework to start wrestling through different ethical questions. So let's pray, and then we're going to take communion together. Father, your word is beautiful, and it's challenging. And God, there are so many times where I think we just want Scripture to come out and give us a clear answer, and there are so many places where your word does. But God, I'm grateful that your word often calls us to do the difficult work of thinking. That to follow Jesus is not to check your brain at the door and to say there's an exhaustive answer for any and every situation. We are often, particularly in this world that we live in, in this city, 
trying to make our way through gray areas. Trying to figure out what to do when it's not as clear as we wish it were. And God, I'm grateful that you're more interested in teaching us a pattern of thought than you are giving us a simple checklist. But it also means we have work to do. So God, would you give us strength? Would you enable us to enjoy the gift of community? That we get to work all of this out together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Give us your grace, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.